Hey there, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And this is the Vertiguys Internet Radio Program. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're talking about Hellblazer. Been a little while since we read Hellblazer. Well, only technically, because the last comic book that we read during our Hellblazer slot was actually two issues of The Horrorist. That's right. And then before that, we read Hellblazer Annual. So it's been quite some time since we covered a sequential issue of Hellblazer. Where did we leave off? So the last thing that happened immediately before the comics we'll read today is that Constantine fell asleep on the beach of a shitty little resort town and had a bad dream. Yeah, that's right. He was upset about nuclear radiation, basically. Didn't like nuclear power very much at all. Right. And we will find him, at least at the beginning of this story, in that same little shitty resort town. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Today we are covering Hellblazer issues 14, 15, and 16. These comic books are all written by Jamie Delano. And they have art by Richard Pierce Rayner and Mark Buckingham. And these three issues are the first third of a story arc called The Fear Machine. They even say so right on the covers. No, they do not. They do not say so on the covers, but they say so on their title pages. That's right, and it's a little while before we find out really what The Fear Machine is. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we don't really find out here in these first three issues, at least not satisfactorily to my mind. All right. Well, all right, so Hellblazer issue number 14, Touching the Earth. We have here a cover by Dave McKeon, what looks like ripples in a pond, or perhaps a fingerprint. I thought this was a fragment of an elevation map. Oh, yeah, I suppose it could be that, too. And we've also got three people on the cover. One of them seems to be John Constantine. Yep, the second one I'm guessing is Marge, and the third one is a man in a black hat. Maybe Eddie. Right. This map, by the way, is hovering over a ring of standing stones, which is something that will become relevant shortly. Yeah, that, that's a thing that happens. You want to launch into the comic book? Yeah. So we find John once again having a bad dream. He is dreaming that he's in a park, and it's a strange park full of thin, starved people, listless like refugees. There seem to be guards and a small boy watching, slowly ticking a stick along the railings. Kind of imagining a suburban park turned into a scene of horror and oppression? Well, the symbolism might go deeper than that, as we'll find out. All right, John wakes up, and I like the way that a hand on his shoulder is just barely visible inside the panel, and he narrates that her heavy arm rolls from me like a dead thing as he slips out of bed. Yes, John Constantine is here in bed with his lady. <laughs> yeah, and we kind of get an idea of what he thinks of his bedmate. His rendezvous. Yeah. Well, he actually... She's sort of barely in panel, and his narration doesn't really consider her as a person. Well, he gives, he gives us a name for this one, which is not something he always does. July, or Julie, maybe. Uh, it looks like July to me. 
Turns out she's a bartender at a hotel. They got drunk together talking about William Blake and ended up in bed together. Yeah, when Jamie Delano is writing him, everyone wants to sleep with Constantine. Yeah, that's something that we've seen consistently. Even in his nightmare, the nuclear power plant worker's girlfriend wanted to sleep with him and was suddenly much more attractive than she had been. <laughs> so, yeah, he, uh, he doesn't think much of her or maybe much of himself, certainly not much of their future together. So he slinks out and on his way encounters a milkman who he calls a Milko. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Which I thought was pretty great. The Milko's voice booms like an icebreaker above the chilly clatter of the bottles. Very noir, John. Just give us a pint of milk, pal, eh? And I want to point out, as he leaves, the excuses that he makes to himself for skipping out and for not saying anything to that woman as he does. You know, there's no future in it. She'll probably wake up thinking I was a nightmare. Right. Like I said, not thinking much of himself either, or at least pretending not to. Yeah, he's telling a bit of a story to ease his conscience, I think. Uh, John also mentions on this page that he's been here for a month, that he's getting to know the milkman. We basically find out that he's been hiding out on the beach near Liverpool since the last issue. Is he getting to like the milkman? Moving on. <laughs> and he also mentions, saving mankind's not the buzz it's cracked up to be. Real life seems a bit tedious and boring. Or maybe I'm just an adrenaline junkie. So it's good that he's self-aware about that. So he ducks into a newsagent's to buy some silk cut. And then Diet Pepsi product placement. Yeah, yeah. And... Well, technically it's advertising for Diet Pepsi product placement. So it's advertising for Diet Pepsi... And it's telling you where you can sell ads for Diet Pepsi. And it's also, I guess, kind of product placement for the sun. Yeah, it is. Although he doesn't think much of the sun. Right. But yeah, he picks up a copy of the sun and sees a big old Diet Pepsi ad and himself. Face of evil, Satanist slayer sought. Yeah, I noticed that at the bottom of this article, police advise that this man is dangerous and should not be approached, but the sun says, stop the sickos, have a go. <laughs> Yeah. Wow, the newspaper urges vigilante violence. That is some cynicism right there. I also like, police are urgently seeking this man, ex-mental patient and punk rocker John Constantine. <laughs> Another headline on this page, Kamikaze Husband Kills Wife. I wondered at first if that was an event that we should recognize or if that was something that was going to come up later in the story arc. Mm. So far, it hasn't come back. It's from Action Comics number 431. Oh. No. Just made that up. Kamikaze husband was Metallo. Probably. Is there a funnier Superman villain I could have chosen? Mr. Mitzelplit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and this is our title page. The credits of the issue are printed in the pages of the sun. Oh, yeah. I thought that was cool, too. So John decides to get out of town, hitchhikes a little ways... He has a misunderstanding with a fishmonger, and he just starts thinking about how he has no trusted friends. Oh yeah, he's riding in this car with this guy, and the guy is complaining that his, his last rider was a woman, and he basically wasn't able to take sexual advantage of her. Sexist prick. Yeah, but Constantine thinks that the guy is trying to take sexual advantage of him. Mm -hmm. Or maybe he just doesn't like the guy very much, but either way... He gets the hell out of there. Well, yeah, that's the excuse that he gives to Constantine as Constantine is bailing out. I didn't mean you, mate. I was talking about the bird. 
<laughs> right. Well, anyway, a fugitive's supposed to cover his trail, isn't he? That truck was heading up to London, and I don't want to go there. I also like, as he hits the road by himself, he comments that the truck driver was probably a sunreader. Oh, yeah, that's right. And that's how we know that he doesn't think much of sunreaders. Well, so we should mention, as John narrates here, why he is wanted in Satanist slangs. Back in Hellblazer number 12, his downstairs flatmate and his landlady were murdered by Nurgle in revenge for John getting the better of him. Yeah, Nurgle being the demon that John summoned at Newcastle, who has been ruining his and his friends' lives ever since. Right. So John had a pretty darn good alibi and was not involved really at all, but he doesn't want to answer questions about this. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, he's walking down the street, and he's thinking that, sure, he knows some people, but he doesn't really have any trusted friends. He he doesn't have an OTP. Okay. <laughs> if you will. Except old Chaz, and keeping my gear safe in his lockup is about as much responsibility as he can handle. Now, he hitchhikes for a few hours with nobody stopping, and then guess who does? It's a cop car. Yeah, and there's a bit of a, a mean world fallacy going on here when he thinks about how people just aren't friendly anymore because nobody will pick him up. As soon as John sees the brake lights, he takes off into the bush. Stop! Stay where you are! It does seem that they recognize him. Right. He knows that at least they don't have guns here yet. Which is interesting. The police are unarmed. Yeah, unarmed and too lazy to follow him. Yeah, that's right. No way, mate. I'm not scrambling about in that bloody jungle. Anyhow, it's nearly time to change shift. John attempts to run down the embankment into the river and basically ends up rolling and he comes face to face with a toad, which is catching a fly at the time. Kind of a visual metaphor, except that it's a subverted one because he got away. Christ, I hate the countryside. For a moment, it occurs to him that this might be another nightmare. But I couldn't be that lucky. I'm freezing, soaked to the skin, plastered in black, gritty mud. And I'm scared. I don't like being hunted. I don't like mud and thorns and insects. And I don't like injustice. I don't like it either. Especially injustice, too. <laughs> that one looks even dumber than the original. I think one of those has Constantine in it. Oh, I bet it does. Doesn't one of them have uh, Hellboy in it for reasons? Oh, yeah, that, that's right. Hellboy is a playable character now. He's not in the DC universe. Yeah. Fucking A. Where's Etrigan, man? That's who you need. Yeah, Marvel's own Hellboy. Except, you know, DC. <laughs> who's, who's Marvel's own Hellboy? Oh, I was going to say Blue Devil, but that's a DC character, too. Shit. Magic? Well, yeah, she, she, well, sort of. Maybe Hela from Thor Ragnarok, out now. <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate the assist. <laughs> yeah. They'll, they'll see a, a noticeable uptick. <laughs> so as John picks his way through the brush, he starts comparing himself to a superhero. If he was a superhero, then all of his do-gooding would have earned him good press. He thinks to himself. And then he compares himself to a terrorist. Yeah, and as he says this, or as he narrates this, he's 
looking at the the box of silk cut that he just bought, and they're they've been ruined. Yeah, John is once again unable to smoke, take a drink, and he's also soaked to the skin, so he takes off all his clothes, and we get naked John Constantine. That's the second time in nine pages. Take a drink. Yeah, and we can once again see the tattoo of a tree on his ass. Oh yeah, that is a callback to his crossover with Swamp Man, Mega Man, who was inhabiting his body during the Adoration de la Terre story arc. That's right. And got a tattoo. As revenge for the many times John's manipulated him. Right. Also manipulated him as revenge for many many times John's manipulated him. Yeah, speaking of his tattoo, it is noticed by a young girl who is watching him get naked. Yeah, she's just sort of wandering about in the brush. And the way that she's drawn, it's actually pretty difficult to tell that she's supposed to be a child. Yeah, she does seem to be almost as tall as Constantine. Right, she's about his height. The sort of unkempt way that she dresses and keeps her hair is kind of a big clue to me. Fair enough. She could just be a nerd. She could just be a computer science student. Uh Uh-oh. Oops. And I like that she says that she likes the tree on his bum, and he says, Don't know what you're talking about, kid. (laughs) Yeah, he still doesn't know about it, (laughs) it seems. (laughs) So, anyway, she has strange insights from beyond the mortal realm. Or at least, she says that he's not a bad person, and he says, How can you tell what I'm like just from looking? From your aura, I can tell you're tired and hungry, and a bit scared of something as well. Why don't you come and have something to eat with me and Marge? And have we introduced her yet? This is Mercury, Merc for short. Right, and this is her first appearance. Interestingly, some people think that the word Merc or Mercenary is actually from Mercury. Because they would be Mercurial in their loyalties? The god. Well, no, but because he was a god of commerce, I guess. Oh, okay. Interesting. And and John sort of agrees with you here as he comments that she's one of those kids who could be any age between one and a hundred. <laughs> right. We also get one of his struths. <laughs> yeah, I liked this exchange. She is collecting magic mushrooms for a guy named Eddie. Hallucinogenic mushrooms. And he says, do you eat them as well? Nah, I don't need to. I'm trippy enough naturally. Struth! So on the next page, John follows Mercury back to their camp. Yeah, this is a fairly wasted page. He steps in a cow pie. She makes a comment about how bulls have their testicles removed. He thinks about how much he hates cross-country. Yeah, this shows that John is fairly out of shape and doesn't really get along with the countryside which we kind of saw a page or two ago, just establishing that even more at the beginning of the story arc. Right. And I guess it's important to a certain extent because these three issues are so rural, you know, in their nature, that it does make sense to spend some time establishing how out of his element he is. Yeah, I mean, without spoiling the whole thing, he does go on to be part of a community out here and and so we we benefit from seeing that he's not inured to that sort of thing. He's not innately good at it or interested in it. 
community or <laughs> or rural or rural uh, livings, but also community. Yeah. So after that, we come to a well-disguised two-page spread. Mercury introduces John to her friends, a bunch of people who live out of vans and RVs. And she introduces him without him actually ever having given her his name. That's right. She knows it without asking. And you say RVs, in one case a bus. John mentions that he's been running for the bus at the top of this page, and we still don't see it across the entire two-page spread. Isn't that it on the upper right-hand corner? But we get a look at we get a look at a little part of it right there. Okay. We get the big reveal on a page or two. In any case, we meet Mercury's mom, Marge, and we meet the leader of their little group, Eddie. He has on a fancy cape. Yeah, a cape or a coat, certainly with a fur collar. And a little... It looks like a little beaded connecting string. Yeah. So I thought it looked like a cape. He has two dogs named Gog and Magog. That's a biblical reference, but it's also like one of the many biblical references reused in Kingdom Come. Oh yeah, that's true. Gog and Magog are prophesied enemies of the Messiah in the book of Revelation. It's unclear if they're going to be demons, people, nations, or what. Right, and in Kingdom Come, they are like a multi-generational superhero team. Something like that. Magog is the guy that kills the Joker at the beginning of the story, sets the whole thing off. Right. John asks if they are associated with the Peace Convoy. Now, this was a large convoy of travelers loosely associated with the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. They were broken up in 1985 in what's called the Battle of the Beanfield, which Marge mentions here, in which police blocked travelers' access to the Stonehenge Free Festival and rather brutally arrested 537 out of 600 people that were there, the largest civil arrest in English history. Yeah, we'll see that these sort of nomadic traveling people get pretty rough treatment at the hands of the police, and unfortunately that seems to mostly be based on real life. Yeah. So they get John aboard the bus, and at dusk they take off. We finally get a good look at the bus, which they call the Heart of Gold. Yeah, and I wondered if that was a reference to Neil Young. Right. You know, the famous Neil Young song. Neil Young's a pretty leftist guy. They drive by a ring of standing stones and consider stopping. That's actually Stonehenge itself, I think. Yeah, They're okay. in the right place for it. He mentions that they're on Salisbury Plain. Mm. Okay, cool. And Eddie doesn't want to stop because it just brings me down to see them closed in behind those fences like prisoners. Yeah, and John remembers his dream. Right, the people behind fences, the stones behind fences. And I also wondered if this was sort of a subtle reference to the subject matter of the Hellblazer Annual, in which Constantine's ancestor worshipped at the stones. Oh yeah, that's quite possible. I haven't bothered to look up the release date of that issue, and whether it actually would have come around this time. But it does seem sort of on topic. As they pass by the stones, Marge asks John if he's a pagan, if he's into ley lines and megalithic power, and he replies that he's no nature mage. I've always been a bit of a townie. Never managed to get properly in touch with my natural rhythms. I, I thought it was an interesting bit of characterization that he's kind of a dabbler in magic, kind of seeks out whatever is useful to him. Right. Yeah, it seemed to me that, at least at first, 
despite the fact that he knows all about magic himself, he doesn't take the kind of magic that Eddie is into very seriously. Yeah, and, and somebody in here, I presume Marge, uh, drops the title as she tells him, if more people got out of their cars and their insulated TV reality and remembered how to touch the earth, the world might be a healthier, calmer place. They also talk a little bit about what we already discussed, how these nomadic living people don't get along well with the government. Eddie refers to cities as concrete prison camps, and Marge says, The police hassle us all the time, trying to break us up. Since the convoy, they've even passed a law limiting the number of vehicles that can travel together. Yeah, and she goes on to compare travelers to Indians, Aborigines, and Gypsies in the way that they're oppressed and potentially wiped out. Yeah, they also say some sort of, you know, pseudo-deep historical stuff about how nomadic societies are the oldest forms of societies, and that must mean they're the best. Well, John nods off, enjoying this conversation to some degree, apparently, and as he is asleep, the bus enters a zone labeled Ministry of Defense, Strictly No Admittance. Right. Foreboding. Yeah, I wondered what was happening here, why they would go into such a place, but we'll come back to that in a couple pages, I think. Yeah, they don't seem to know that it's there. Did you come up with a different explanation? Well, there's a mention a little later on that there are people who invite them to come stay on their land. Right. And so I wondered if somebody had invited them here, essentially, as a trap. Oh, could be. You wouldn't think that, like... I mean, on the next page, they sort of explain about park-ups. Yeah. How farmers and such give permission for them to kind of camp out and their land. And you wouldn't think if it was privately held land owned by a farmer that it would also be cordoned off by the Department of Defense. Right. Yeah, John applies some sort of blanket cynicism to the entire endeavor. My only experience of communal living was in a Brixton squat in the early 70s. Rotten carpets and boarded windows. Needless to say, it ended in tears. The idea always sounds good. The people usually screw it up. Nonetheless, he thinks this might be a good way to lay low for a while. So he gets introduced to a few more people. Errol, who is a guy with dreadlocks and a tattoo on his head. That reads zero. And Marge gives him a sort of earthier change of clothes, saying that he looks like a renegade social worker. (laughs) There's a bustle of activity around the camp as they're preparing meals and what have you, and John feels useless. Yeah, and Marge sort of rescues him by helping him put together his bender. Right. Now, we have seen John on a bender before, particularly in the second issue of the series. Yeah, that happened. And by that happened, I mean that joke you just told. (laughs) We all have to live with it. Well, this is a different kind of bender. A different kind than anyone he's ever heard before in which they take tree branches and bend them and set them into the ground to form the skeleton of a tent. And as they are trying to do that, one of them snaps back and whacks John in the face. Yeah, I I liked this panel because it's like, it's almost kind of montage style, you know? There's nothing said about it before or after. There's not even a sound effect. We just get the image of it happening. Right. In with a kind of montage of them putting together this tent. But they do get it together. And Merck reminds John to dig a drainage gully for his bender. Drainage! Yeah, and he he wonders about where he'll do his washing up. But Errol solves that problem by saying he can use the shower 
in his RV anytime. Yeah, Errol just turns up without even being asked. He guesses that Constantine will have this problem and offers the solution. So he has a bit of a chat with Errol. Errol has some tobacco, which he refers to as the bollocks. He refers to everything as the bollocks. Yeah, that's pretty great. John takes note of that. Yeah, and he, he sort of notes what it was like. He's biracial, and he, he notes that it was difficult growing up that way in England. And especially, he seems to say that whenever he lives in cities, he just inevitably gets in trouble. Doing junk, doing chemists, doing time, he says. Right. He also mentions that because he was biracial, he got shot by both sides. Hmm. Is the see. phrase he uses. Well, John tries to help out with the cooking, and that doesn't go so well. Bloody hell, John. I said to peel the potatoes, not butcher them. Oh, well, perhaps we could have chips. You do that a lot, don't you? What? Make silly jokes when you're embarrassed about something. I can't help it. It comes naturally. He's introduced to a woman named Sam, and asks if it's short for Samantha, and she lifts him over her head, and replies that no, it's short for Samson. Suppose I asked for that. But Merck tells him, don't try so hard. Just be yourself. I thought I was. Seems strange to be lectured in social graces by a kid. She's right, though. I need to relax. It's just that I feel like someone from another planet. It seems like John's really not used to trying to be part of a community, trying to form real relationships with people. And as the night goes on, we see Eddie reading the copy of The Sun. Yeah, they see the newspaper and they don't seem to react. That's because they don't recognize him or they don't care. It's not clear at this point. So John huddles in for the first night in his bender and says it feels oddly satisfying to touch the earth. He hears the sound of owls, which reminds him that there are hunters and there are the hunted. This is the oldest truth of all. And then he wakes up flooded in water because he forgot about drainage. Bloody hell, I forgot to dig the sodden drainage gully. So, yeah, not a lot happened in that issue. I mean, we got introduced to a bunch of new characters, but it was fairly uneventful. The closest thing to any action we got was John seeing a cop car running into the woods and falling down. Yeah, it was a very slow, quiet issue, kind of a breeder issue. Stage setting for the fear machine, but without really any hint other than the title that there is more trouble to come. Yes, indeed. So, that brings us to Hellblazer number 15, Shepherd's Warning. It has the same creative team as Hellblazer number 14. On the cover here, we have John backgrounded by storm clouds, and he's clutching his chest as a lightning bolt blasts through him, lighting up his chest. Yeah, and there's sort of an x-ray effect there. I thought this was an effective transition. We left on John going to sleep in his bender, and we open on him waking up in it, although not the next day, but months or weeks later. Right, he seems to have kind of settled in. Too much wine last night, again. This is the life, though. I like it here. I could get used to it. He waxes a little poetic about the calm pre-dawn hour, and we get the title page. Almost too quiet, but there's always a worm in the apple, a snake in the grass. And what is it they say? Red Sky in the Morning. Fear Machine Part 2, Shepherd's Warning. I like that as he says snake in the grass, we see a kingfisher pick up and kill a snake, reversing the metaphor. 
So John sees an attractive woman from the nomadic group that he's traveling with. She approaches the water without noticing him. Yeah, and she begins to undress, and John is basically stalking her, and and as he does so, he's also calling himself out in the narration for being a predatory asshole. And then he makes himself known with a coom. I thought that was sort of a throat clearing sound. Yeah, I wasn't sure what it was, but uh, I liked it. I mean, it's one thing to introduce yourself with, and it's another thing to introduce yourself with, come! <laughs> oh, God. So she's unhappy with him lurking around, and uh, just generally doesn't seem to know or trust him very much. It seems she's heard his reputation in the press. She's nervous as hell, John narrates, but I'm sure she's into it. Yeah, Man, that's, what a prick! Yeah, that really continues the... The poor behavior that you made note of on the last page. But she is having none of that. She says, I know who you are, John Constantine. I know what you did to them people. And she accuses him of being there to steal Eddie's power. Yeah, now, that's right. The, because the newspaper says that he's a black magician. Now, somebody in the traveling party does have power that somebody is going to try to steal. But it ain't John and Eddie. Right. She mentions that she saw the newspaper when she went into town to cash me Jiro. What does that mean? So a Jiro is a... A Jiro transfer is a form of money transfer that's used in Europe, never really caught on in the U.S. Uh, basically, it's a, a third party transfers money into a payee's account on a payer's order. Like somebody who has to pay a debt can order a bank to pay it without delivering a check to the payee. Oh, I see. But Jiro check or just Jiro is also a popular slang in the U.K. for a check. Jiro was the widely used method of distributing unemployment benefits in the UK in the 80s. So that's ah, what she's talking about. I see. So he wants to get out of this situation and not have his cover blown. So he does a little bit of hypnosis on Myra. Well, there's a panel here where he's reaching for her like he might be about to try to choke her, but it turns out to be hypnosis. Also, this, was, this page was the first time I noticed he's grown a beard now. Right, yeah, so it's been a little while. And he calls her fake news. The newspaper is a hole in your mind. <laughs> he's, uh, he's telling her to forget seeing the newspaper. At first I thought he was just making a statement on the value of news media. <laughs> right. Well, Basically, as you know, he, he has a war going on with the news media. John does? Yeah. So basically he hypnotizes her to not remember that he saw her that morning or that she saw the paper, and it doesn't work. Yeah, he says it's clumsy. And for some reason, this diffuses the situation anyway, as she walks back to camp. It's not right, she says, leaving. You shouldn't mess around with people's heads. Yeah, John agrees. You had no right to force yourself into her mind. That was taking advantage. Not much better than rape. You can't like people unless you respect them. Yeah, John, that was a dick move. It really was. So, at this point, Merc, short for Mercury, comes running over, and she wants to walk the ley line with him. She's getting away from Marge for a little while. It's, they had a fight, which uh, she says it's PMS, but really it's because I always know what she's going to say next. Psychic powers. So they go out to walk the ley line. John mentions here in his narration that he... Gave up trying to understand ley lines because it was too mathematical. Yeah, I found that pretty funny. 
And Merck mentions that Myra said John had done something to her head. It's all right, though. I won't tell. I do it sometimes, too, when I want to play without the other kids being nervous of me. Just because somebody else did it doesn't make it okay, John. Come on, let's run. The next circle's down in the wood. Last one to touch, it's a dickhead. So they run off. John is still in bad shape and not good at cross-country. Wonder who her father was. Probably an Olympic sprinter. And they find this sort of enclosure, labeled Geotronic, and labeled Keep Out. Yeah, and when she sees it, Merc turns white. It's wrong. Fencing in the stones destroys their power. The whole place feels bad. Can't you feel it? The scaredness? It's horrible. She decides she has to rescue the stones from this enclosure and jumps the fence. She gets stopped by a security guard. You're bad, she tells him. I hope you have a stroke and turn into a vegetable. John comes into the fender with a stick of wood. Right, I'm not a violent man, but let her go or I'm going to do my level best to kill you. And before the scene can get any worse, two suits intervene. Now, right before they do that, John takes his stick and he, it seems like he hits one of the standing stones with it. But the sound that it makes is, Crang! That's pretty weird. Pretty eerie. Yeah, not normally the sound you would expect. So these two suits show up. And John tells them that this brain-dead stormtrooper assaulted his daughter. In the circumstances, perhaps there is no call for further action. I suggest you take your daughter and leave. That's right, John did claim Mercury was his daughter uh, a little earlier in the scene. Yeah. The guard here is a guy named Davis. And the suit on the right, with the big Coke bottle glasses and the red hair, is a guy named Fulton, although we won't find that out for a little while yet. Right, but he'll be important in the next issue. So they get out of the enclosure, but Merck still feels sick. And then she decides to pull a Constantine. She's going to sit on the key information and do nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, she says that one of the men that they talked to messed with her mind. And it's seemingly kind of continuing the theme of John messing with Myra's mind earlier. Mm -hmm. John feels like there's danger in the air, dark doings. He says, that unmistakable thrill of excitement crackling from groin to pineal gland, signaling that here is danger, here are dark doings. But he tells himself to just ignore it. He doesn't want to get mixed up in magical stuff anymore. Yeah, and a couple pages earlier when he was dealing with Myra, he also mentioned that after ten years of bad craziness, he didn't want to be into that anymore. Right. That he's, was his sort of excuse for his attempted hypnosis. So he's sort of decided to give up the arcane hero business and actually live a peaceful life. We'll see how long that lasts. He tries to apologize to Myra, and she says the apology is accepted and gives him a cup of tea. And then he goes and chats with Errol here. There's a funny bit of business where he tries to turn down Errol's music so that he can talk to him, and the headphones blast off of Errol's head. Oh yeah, that was pretty amusing. Also, people around the camp kind of generally agree that there's bad omens in the air. They chat about music for a minute. Right. John asks if he was listening to Lee Perry, or recognizes that he was listening to Lee Perry. That's a, a noted dub artist from Jamaica. Yeah. Errol is listening to SDI, and John makes reference to another song, I Am the Upsetter. John also mentions being a fan of Scottish electronic group The Shaman and American punk rocker's Big Black. Big Black had that album, Songs About Fucking. <laughs> All right. That has, it's just a really recognizable album cover. Mm -hmm. 
one of the most famous album covers, I think, of the last few decades. What's that one? It's like a woman with gritted teeth against a monocolor background. Okay, okay. Also, Errol shows off his diary, which is entirely done in doodles. Right. Now, one of the pictures in this diary is a very detailed painting of Errol exhaling smoke out of his nose. And as he starts to show this to John, John is distracted. My face feels suddenly huge and numb, hands shaking, the air tastes like gravy. And what John is not paying attention to is Errol happening to mention that he used to go with a girl named Zed. This chick done it. I met her hitching down near Glastonbury. She stayed with me for about a month, then headed up to Scotland with some heavy-duty pagan types. Shame, she was tasty, a bit spaced out and flaky, but then who ain't, dude? Zed, her name was. Good painting, innit? It's the bollocks, Errol. But he's feeling trippy as hell. Yeah, John falls to his knees and the scene suddenly goes into inverted colors. Yeah, I thought that was a cool effect for what's happening to him. And it's not like they just, it's not like they actually inverted the colors, I don't think. I don't think they, like, drew it first and then inverted the colors. I think they actually, right. like, painted it in an inverted color type style. So what they realize is that Myra spiked John's tea with fly agaric, another psychoactive mushroom. Right. He shouldn't have messed with my head, she says. Now, when John hears that it was fly agaric, he says, bloody hell, that's poison. Yeah, and he also says that's what the Vikings took to turn them into blood-crazed psychopaths, berserkers. Yeah, it's true that it's toxic enough that it's not generally used as a recreational drug the way psilocybin is. Mm -hmm. But it's also fairly rare for it to kill people. Although, maybe that's just because it isn't used very often. Right. Now, Eddie offers him some grass or some downers to calm down, but instead John bolts off into the grass by himself. Yeah, he's feeling really high and really unwell, but apparently decides that what he ought to do about it is take a walkabout. And there's a cool bit of art here where, uh, where he's drawn upside down. Yeah, he mentions here that in his intoxicated state, the enemy is the fear that's matching every nuance of my step, hovering invisible at the far left periphery of my vision. He also says, never could get to grips with psychedelics. He uh, really is not into drugs this heavy. Yeah, he trips and falls and finds himself face-to-face with an alligator, except then it turns out to be a log. Now, he has a dream about two cows, or a vision of two cows. That's going to come back later. Then he tries to climb up this hill. He thinks, I'm King Kong ascending the Empire State, Quasimodo scaling Notre Dame, rising ahead the ridge is the head of a sleeping dragon. Above its eye, a castellated high place where a man could rest in safety, committed to the Earth Queen's sanctuary. It's nonsense. You can say that again, John. (laughs) Well, I wondered if the references to a dragon and the Earth Queen are more references to the annual, in which there was that dragon that worked for that Earth Goddess. Yeah, again, the reuse of some of the same mystical motifs does seem to be intentional. Although, forgot to check the compared release dates. So John comes to In a Circle of Stones... And there's this guy messing with them with some kind of electronic equipment. Yeah, and it's making a chunk noise, whatever he's doing. He apparently hammers something into it and then, and then activates it with this machine. 
and whatever he's doing, it causes John's trip to start again. Yeah, now we don't quite get a full title drop here, but he does say, Then I feel it, a sound profoundly deep and unsettling, a distant rumbling, as if the world changed gear, or sleeping continents troubled by nightmare snuggled their partners for comfort. The air around turns into this big green mass, and then it is revealed as the giant face of Swamp Thing. Now, the guy who instigated all this seems to be as badly affected by it as Constantine is. He uh, does a handstand or a cartwheel or something, and then starts beating himself to death against the rocks. John is pulled into the mouth of the giant Swamp Thing head, and... The mouth bites down, leaving only his arm outside, which is a reference to what happened to Astra back in Newcastle in issue 11. For sure. Later, much later, John is lucid again, and he checks out where the guy bashed his skull against the stone. Unless, no, it's some kind of lichen. Right, the red splotch is there, but it's not blood. And we see Computer Guy watching from a distance, and he reports in. Shepherd to fold, come in. So that's kind of another reference to Shepherd's Warning, the title of the issue. Yeah. John also links this to what happened earlier this morning with Mercury. She felt it too. Fear, she said. Something scary. Yeah, and a lot of people around the camp did say that there was a bad omen in the air. John makes his way back to the bus where Marge offers him a cup of tea. And... He gets out of his wet clothes and wraps a blanket around him and ends up falling asleep with a snore sound effect. <laughs> right. He wakes up with Marge and they end up falling into bed together. Yeah. They have sex because of course they do. She is a woman written by Janie Delano. What else is she going to do? In, in the afterglow, Marge says, I'm glad we did that. It felt a bit special to me. It felt right to me. Do you think it means anything? This is dangerous ground. I liked it with Zed, too. Jesus, I forgot. Did Errol really tell me she was alive? Right, she was hitchhiking away from Glastonbury, where he thought she had died. Just then, Merc bursts in, disturbing their intimate scene, doing her River Tam thing as she leans down from the top bunk. <laughs> Bloody hell, Mercury, can't I have anything to myself? Marge protests. I like this line. You are a thoroughly bad lot, girl, John says. This place is having a strange effect on me. There's something important here, something valuable, something I should care about. As they are going to bed, Mercury says, John, I liked it when you called me your little girl, when you were talking to that man. Christ, she knows how to hit the spot. Families, eh? Families are supposed to be love and strength and comfort, but more often they're heartbreak and jealousy. Go oh, well. Sleep now. Worry later. And in the final panel, as they go to sleep, we see policemen rushing up to the bus. The filth are closing in. So I didn't end up having much use for that issue. John got high. It was kind of a distraction. Yeah, again, like, important hints were dropped. Yeah. But we're now two issues into the story arc, and we don't have the first clue what the fear engine is. Or what the overriding conflict of this story is going to be. Yeah, it's taking its time and setting up. Although that's something we've discussed, you know, with other stories. That's something we discussed with the Sandman recently as we launched into Season of Mists. Right. The difference is, though, that with Season of Mists, 
we might not have gotten to the sort of main thrust of the story arc yet, but we didn't go two issues without any real lasting conflict. Well, that's true. The conflict was pretty clearly established from the first issue and propelled the story from that point on in Season of Mists once we found out that Morpheus had to go back to hell. I also feel like we had a whole issue nightmare two issues ago in number 13, and then we have most of an issue dedicated to a drug trip here. Imagery is cool and all, and I know that some people feel that drugs access mystical knowledge, although John seems to openly reject that idea in the text, and sort of tying its mythology to counterculture as part of this comic's mystique, but depicting the drug trip just felt like a waste of time to me. Well, I thought that it did some kind of interesting things with the idea of changes in perception mm -hmm. and whether they're caused by drugs or whether they're caused by magic, you know, and the blurry line between the two. Yeah, and John has said things before. In The Horrorist, he said, there's no drug like magic. Anyway, this story is about to pick up the pace a little bit with Hellblazer number 16, Rough Justice. The cover shows a bridge with a face shadowed in the main pillar. Is there a name for that technique where you sort of have something hidden in the foreground? <laughs> Not really sure. Well, in any case, hidden in the corner, there's also a body hanging from the bridge. Oh. And that brings us to the first page. We open on a bridge. Yeah, and here's a man that you may or may not recognize, and he is being hanged by another man in fancy clothes, and he is ultimately kicked off the bridge to his doom, with a noose tied around his neck. And as we turn the page, we smash cut to Merc waking up. This is a vision that she's been having. She refers to the man as having a white fungus face, and thinks about how she keeps imagining him jumping and dropping. Then she confirms that he's the man that she met in the woods. Right, the man we will come to know as Fulton. She thinks for a page or so here about her jealousy of Marge's relationship with Constantine. She found him first. Yeah, and she really just wants to creep in and share the bed with them. Right, I think she's creeping into the bed for, for comfort because she's having this disturbing vision over and over. A common desire for little kids. Mm -hmm. Just then, the cops bust in through the window. That's what I wrote, too. It says, cops bust in. Yeah, and one of them immediately clubs John. John's naked, take a drink. <laughs> the tree is still visible on his ass. They uh, haul Mercury out of the bus... And there's a full page of Merc watching the cops beat up a guy. Yeah, Merc is feeling the violence in the cops' auras, and it's really messing her up. Now, there's one officer here who, instead of a plastic visor, is wearing a sort of a fancy hat. And he radios someone who's watching from the car. Right, supposedly the police are busting them for vagrancy, but they're actually reporting to... Looks like Dr. Fulton. Right, and the, he confirms that Merck is the target. Is this the child you mean? Affirmative. Bring her and the mother. So they push them into a van, and Merck is doing her best here to look strong because she knows that basically if John fears for them, he'll keep fighting the cops and they'll keep beating him up. Mercury refers to him yet again as Fungus Face. The cops take Merck 
and Marge, and leave. Now there's a line here, Marge tells the cops, you're the ones trespassing, we've got permission to be here. Which I wondered if that connected back to what the hell they're doing on government land in the first place. Right. Did somebody arrange for them to be here as a trap so they could capture Mercury? Right, they seem to believe, at least, that they're staying on private farmland. And right. they don't seem to know about the Ministry of Defense sign that got put up. Yeah, about the experiments that are going on with the stones. So they've got Mercury and Marge in the van, and Mercury is telepathically or empathically feeling what the cops are feeling. Some things that she calls filthy and disgusting. It sounds like one of them is basically having the urge to rape Marge. One of them wants to make her kiss him, bruising her lips against the cold plastic of his visor. The other wants to... 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 No, stop it! Leave her alone! Mercury, don't! There's a bit of a fight, and Mercury pulls the mask off one guy, and it says that he looks guilty like a boy caught at mischief. Uh, at this point, Fulton and the fancy hat cop come in and stop the situation from progressing any further. Fulton gives Marge some kind of injection, and basically they drug her up so that she won't react and push her out of the van. Right. So Marge gets left behind as they leave in the van with Mercury. Back at the camp, John wakes up. Yeah, and there's a pretty jarring narration switch here as we go from a third-person narrator, kind of a third-person omnipotent describing Mercury's thoughts, to John describing his own thoughts in the first person. The rest of the hippies tell John that the cops disabled all their motors and told them they had 24 hours to leave, which basically forces them to spend that time fixing the motors. Right. Now, considering that Marge and Mercury were just kidnapped mm -hmm. and Marge nearly raped, the rest of the traveling party don't seem to be that alarmed. Right. The cops coming in and busting things up and a couple of people getting arrested isn't that big a deal to them. Right. This kind of police violence against them is so commonplace that it makes an effective cover for them to kidnap Mercury. Now, in fact, one of the women here is actually flirting with John a little bit. Of course she is. Is this, uh, <laughs> is this Sam, who we were introduced to earlier? She's a tall redhead, which Sam was, so that makes sense. No, no, doesn't he call her Joe? I thought that might be the brunette. Could be. They all get together, and John wants to know what the plan is. He's nursing some real anti-authoritarian sentiment right now. Massacre at Wounded Knee, eh? Now I know why I always wanted the Indians to win. Eddie thinks that Merck and Marge will be released soon. Don't worry. I expect they'll let them go tonight. They've got nothing on them. They just like to cause maximum hassle. Hmm... No, no. Seems a bit dodgy, to say the least. I think I'd rather check it out at the local Nick. And Errol volunteers to come with him. Yeah, but John says that he might run into some, uh, historical problems. That is to say, the warrant out on him? Yeah, I, I thought historical problems was a, a funny euphemism for his past troubles with the law. Yeah, but despite being the one who's most likely to have a problem with the cops, John decides to go to the police station and see if they're there. And the fastest route, according to Eddie, is cross-country, following the ley line. Yeah, and we know how John loves to travel cross-country. Surprisingly, though, we basically get to the next page and he's arrived. Without incident. Well, there's an incident just as he's arriving. He hears a shotgun blast. And 
this is the two cows that he had the vision of earlier. So last night, these two cows apparently went crazy, ran through a greenhouse, and trampled the vicar's sister. Yeah, the vicar, who might be a little bit nuts, believed that it was Satan coming to collect her. Right, and then the cows were basically torn to pieces by the glass of the greenhouse and killed. Well, this guy in the derby cap had to shoot one. Last night, while I was tripping the night fantastic up amongst the standing stones, further down the ley line, cows and vicars were going loopy. It just goes to show you can't always blame the drugs. So John comes into the station, and he introduces himself as Arnold from the CLDG, which he then explains is the Citizens Legal Defense Group. As far as I can tell, that's not a real organization, so opening with the acronym is kind of a clever way of making the organization sound real. Yeah, this is just a bit of fast talking. They let him in to see Marge. The cops have no desire to keep her. They apparently buy that he's a lawyer despite him wearing the Daniel Boone outfit. Yeah, I wondered if he forgot that he was wearing that. <laughs> right. At this point. He actually brings to mind Johnny Appleseed for me. <laughs> Maybe it's the blonde hair. I picture Johnny Appleseed with blonde hair. Yeah, fair enough. I don't really know. And a blonde beard. So they found Marge wandering drugged and brought her in, and they let him in. They let John in to see her. While he's in the station, he recognizes Davis, the guard from the enclosure the other day. He's dressed as a policeman now, and he's here to report to Chief Super Beale, who is borrowing an office in the building. This is getting dodgier. Better get Marge out while I can. So he gets Marge into some clothes and starts to lead her out of the station. Look, are you sure you don't know anything about the raid and the little girl? He's bribing a policeman now for information, but the guy says, Don't push your luck. No, right, okay. I don't know why, but I believe him. He's just a small-town copper. The guys this morning were professional bastards. Now, on the cab ride back to the campsite, John stops and spends five minutes in a gentleman's outfitter before they continue on. Marge also comes to her senses and is panicked about what's happened to Mercury. When we get back to the camp, it's still raining. Oh no, I let them take her, didn't I? So they get back to the camp, and Eddie is in the sweat lodge trying to come up with a plan. They tell John he's doing a purification ritual. I like the way that John describes the campground. He says, the camp is now a spoiled place, like a showground after the circus has packed to leave. John goes into the sweat lodge to conspire with Eddie. That figures. They were specials. The specials, of course being the elite government unit from Gundam Wing. <laughs> now, who was the commander of the specials? Trey's Renata. All right. So, Eddie tells John that the ley line has been turned into a black stream. Negative energy is flowing along it. Yeah, and as they're having this conversation, John has a pair of scissors, and it looks like he's doing a bit of tailoring. Well, at the very least, he does a bit of barbering, right? That's definitely coming up, but we'll get to that. Eddie also tells him the, the enclosure that they saw yesterday is gone now. They've dismantled it and taken everything away. He says the ecosystem's hanging together by a thread, and now they're messing with the ley lines, but he insists there's nothing he can do about it. John disagrees. You've got magic, haven't you? Right. This is kind of a neat thematic touch, the idea 
the story is here revealed as kind of a counterculture fantasy where the hippie spiritualism has real power that will allow them to defeat the man. Yeah, although Eddie doesn't seem to see it that way. Well, the community forms a plan. They're going to head up to Scotland and link up with an eco-guerrilla group called Pagan Nation. Pagan being Relina's butler from Gundam Wing. Oh my god. <laughs> One woman suggests that they should organize with lawyers and stuff, but uh, that's, that's Samson, actually. And another one says, that's their system, Sam. It only works for them. Marge says, this isn't boys' own adventure. It's real life. The pigs beat us up and Mercury's been disappeared, like in Argentina. Yeah, Mercury. Remember her? Who's going to magic her back? Me. I'm going to get her back, John says, entering the scene dressed like the T-1000. Well, the T-1000 dresses like a cop. Yeah, you're right. He's not dressed like the T-1000. He's quaffed like the T-1000. He's got a, a new tight haircut. His beard is gone. And he's also sharply dressed with black shades. Yeah, back to his old dapper self. As a matter of fact, a little bit more dapper and menacing than we've seen him look before. Yeah, quite an intimidating look. And apparently this is how he's going to disguise himself so that he doesn't look like Satanist murderer John Constantine. Exactly. What have you done to yourself? You look different. Sort of sinister. Good, I feel sinister. Why? Call it dressing for the part, love. I've got work to do. I'm going places where I don't want to be recognized. I just want to point out on this page that Errol says... Guy's the bollocks, dude. It's always nice to have the other characters point out that the main character is awesome. Right. Now, at this point, Marge gives him a ride to the station, and the two of them say goodbye. So, despite his efforts to get away from it all, John's going back to war again. But he says, I've taken sides, made a commitment. I'm going back to war, but this time I know what I'm fighting for. It's simple, really. The right of every living thing to live a life in peace and free from interference. Simply says, oh well, always did like the odds as long as possible. Makes it more exciting, don't it? Now, this brings us to Mercury. She is lying in bed in a room, unable to move, and she hears the sound of a man sobbing. It's a horrible sound. Not a child, a man. So alone, so very alone and scared. Mercury wants to sit up and comfort him, but her body's numb. She can't even move her arm? Her eyes snap open. There's no one in the room, and the sobbing stopped. So she gets out of bed and looks in the mirror, and when she does, she sees a crew-cut guy in a tank top crying. It's him, the crying man. She knows it is. And he is actually looking back at her from the mirror. He produces a pair of scissors that we had not seen before, and he does something that we don't see, but blood pours out of the mirror and fills the sink. His eyes! His eyes! His eyes! His... Mercury gasps in a panic as Dr. Fulton races in to comfort her. So it seemed like she kind of entered that guy's body. You think so? Well, when she looked at the mirror and he was looking back at her, the what? sobbing she was hearing was herself because she was, you know, in the room where he was. That's a read, although it does turn out to be her in the room. My understanding, well, my guess, because it wasn't entirely clear what was happening here, is that that's like a ghost, and this is something that happened previously in this room. Oh, okay. It could be that. I thought that they were, like, turning her into a psychic assassin. Oh. To, like, you know, enter people's brains and make them commit suicide. Crazy. I guess we'll find out. 
Now, Fulton is trying to calm her, but she remembers him, and she has a vision connected with him as well. I know what happens to you. Shall I show you? And she blasts him with this vision as we get, once again, Fulton falling off the bridge, the noose catching, and in this vision it rips his head clean off. Right, he is decapitated. Fulton, unsettled by the vision, needs to go out to the yard for some air. And a man comes over, the dark-haired man that we saw with him before, to ask if he's all right, and then proceeds to ask, well, is she talented enough? Is she going to be worth the risk we took in acquiring her? Beale's men were a little vigorous, I hear. Oh, yes, sir. She's extremely talented. What about her mother and the hippies? Disappeared, apparently. Now, Mercury knows that she is strong enough to weather this captivity, but she's worried about Marge, and she's worried about John. To be continued. So, yeah, that's the end of the first third of the fear machine. I like that one a lot better than the other two. We got some forward momentum, and John's sort of ten-minute retirement gives him a reason to care about the fiasco that he's getting involved in here. Yeah, I agree. I think the third issue really does a good job of kicking this story arc into gear. He's got his mission, and he's going forward in a mode that we haven't quite seen him before. Yeah, that's right. He's looking more badass than ever. I think they really did a really good job. I mean, this is kind of a minor thing, but they did a really good job of, like, you know, they give us John with the wild hair and the blonde beard and the mm -hmm. Davy Crockett, you know, John's look in his hippie phase. And that's a, a really effective juxtaposition against him in the tailored overcoat and the tight haircut. Yeah. Clean shaven that goes to kind of take on the man at the end of all this. So I think the plot moving forward will involve psychic assassins. Mm -hmm. You don't so much. Well, it seems clear that they're messing with ley lines to broadcast negativity. I'm not sure why anybody would do that. We can tell that it's having the effect of driving people and animals crazy. Maybe that's what Kamikaze Husband was about. I don't know. Could be. I wonder if the reason they're messing with ley lines is just to see how they work. So that they can use them in a more surgical way later. Okay, yeah, just trying to figure them out. Right. Experimenting in a fairly clumsy way. I wonder if there's going to be an explanation as to how they found out that Mercury has psychic powers. It seems like a psychic girl who's living off the grid could, could go unnoticed quite easily. Yeah, it's a good question. I wonder what she did to draw their attention to her. So these last two issues were pretty effective at showing John enjoying his time with the hippies. Well, with the possible exception of that time that he tried to mind-wipe somebody and got drugged in return. <laughs> I might wish that we had more hints that the plot was going somewhere other than just what this community is like for the first two issues. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The first issue in particular suffers from a real lack of action. Mm -hmm. And the second issue, so much of it is spent in kind of weird trippiness that we don't quite understand. Right. That it's uh, not as effective as it could be. Even the third issue, we weren't quite on board. We didn't have the same readings of what was going on. But in any case, I, I'm excited to see what happens next. Psychic assassins or no. <laughs> but we hope it's Psychic Assassins. Yeah, I, I certainly do. I'm a little excited to see John with more of a community and just ha sort of having a larger 
meaningful cast in the book in general. He's been kind of a loner uh, to this point. You know, he's had the Newcastle crew, but they've been steadily declining. Right. Mighty Mouse didn't actually get a name until after he was already dead. So, right. He's had, a, he's had problems with supporting characters in the past. Yeah, and, and Ray and Zed appeared and were significant for a little while and then got killed off. Exactly. Well, maybe not. Well, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting development. Do you think that Zed will show up in this story arc? Do you hope that she will? Hmm. I mean, I'm interested to see uh, what she's doing now, where she's been since John kind of wrecked the cult that she was living in. But I'm not sure that she needs to be a part of this story. Gotcha, gotcha. So what was the most John Constantine moment <laughs> in, this, uh, in this set of issues for you? The most John Constantine moment. Are we talking about succeeding despite doing very, very little that requires effort? Or are we talking about being baselessly cynical, or is this more of a the women fall all over him situation? <laughs> women want him, men want to be him. Uh, no, it's it's any of the above. Just anything that makes you say, ah, typical Constantine. Yeah, I mean, the moment that I was most pissed at John was when he tried to hypnotize Myra. Well, first of all, just creeping on Myra in general, and he was even calling himself out on it as he was doing it, and he was still acting... Really sleazy in that scene. Right, she's down by the water, she's starting to undress, and he's taking his time to make his presence known. Yeah. Even though, as he points out to her in his defense, uh, he actually was there first. Yeah, but then as he's flirting, he notes that she's nervous, but he still says she's into it. Yeah, she's nervous as hell, but I can tell she's into it. Uh, I'm <laughs> she's into me. Shut up, John. <laughs> fucking, she's the only woman... <laughs> In this comic book so far, who's not into him? So is that is that your choice? Yeah, well, in a way, that's a that's a bad choice because it's that's not a, <laughs> that's not a moment that makes me like the character very much. You know what I mean? Right. But it is sort of typical in a way. Yeah. Is that your pick? No, my pick is when he's he's in a bad he's in a bad state. Mm-hmm. He's just come come down off a psychedelic trip. Yeah. And he's soaking wet and just looking and probably smelling terrible. Mm, yeah. And Marge still chooses that moment to decide that she wants to initiate a sexual relationship with mm, him. Right. <laughs> oh, Constantine. <laughs> well, Marge is broadly drawn almost to the point of being more a maternal archetype than a character. So in a way, I buy that she's... You know, basically sleeping with him because that's how she takes care of him at this moment. Yeah, it's believable. I think that the the writing has a few tricks up its sleeve in terms of fleshing Marge out a little bit. Mm -hmm. The way that she and Mercury kind of talk to each other like adults. Yeah, yeah, they're they're almost more adult acquaintances or sisters than mother and daughter. Or roommates. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's not a bad job at but Delano has definitely set up, this is the mother, this is the daughter archetypes, and John fits neatly into that unit. Yeah, as he points out at the end of part two. Yeah. I also, like, you know, I thought Eddie and Errol were interesting enough. They've done a decent job of presenting us with characters that we can attach to at least a little bit and want to read more about. I thought Errol was much more interesting than Eddie. 
if only because he's into because he's into music and, and radio and he's got like electronic stuff that he works with, which provides him more of a contrast as opposed to just like Eddie's just the the spiritualism guy, the magic guy. Well, I mean, I mean, Eddie's interesting. He's got he's got dogs named after extreme edgy superheroes. <laughs> you know, he's got a cape. Maybe he does wear that cape. Yeah, he's got a sweat lodge. Sometimes he hangs out in a sweat lodge. Mm-hmm. So, I have a question for you. Do you think that Swamp Thing appeared in this issue, or do you think that? John just kind of imagined Swamp Thing because they have a relationship. Did Swamp Thing show up to save him from that guy's computer machinations? I think that John was considering the possibility that he just imagined it, but the book itself actually makes it pretty clear that it's not the drug trip anymore at that point. That's the actual magic. So it seems like whatever that guy did to the ley line did invoke the Swamp Thing in some way. Not necessarily a physical presence, maybe, but a contact with the green. Right. Okay. Well, all right. That'll do it for now. Join us next time as we do the second third of The Fear Machine. The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. The or Empire... John Constantine Strikes Back, I suppose. <laughs> Against the Empire. Yeah, right. Yeah. The Empire Strikes Back of The Fear Machine, if you will. <laughs> but first, join us next week for a hearty helping of Cassidy's backstory in Preacher. Hey, if you like our show, why don't you check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you're listening to our podcast via iTunes, we would love it if you would give us a review, a rating, a subscription. And if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can do so on Twitter, that's Vertiguys, on Facebook, Vertiguys, or on Gmail, vertiguys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have questions or just want to chat about comic books. That's right. We'd love to address some listener questions, but as always, thanks so much just for listening. Thanks, everybody. So they get George... George? That's not his name. <laughs> George Constantine. <laughs>